Let us hear the word of our God from Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew uh, who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we uh, begin here today, sometimes you hear people talk about the black sheep of the family, or correspondingly, the white sheep of the family. And uh, of course, what is intended here uh, is to say that that probably in most families, if not many, uh, there are you know, one sibling, one child, or something that's always seemed to be getting into trouble. And these are the so-called black sheep. And uh, on the one hand, we could say that's what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1. Uh, the, the white sheep, though, the ones who are uh, the obedient children, uh, that's what Paul's been addressing here in chapter 2, those who are morally good. And, as we start in verse 17, those who basically claim to be believers. Um, many of us, if not all of us, at some point in time in our lives have been considered the white sheep. Many, if not all of us, have been good kids. We are known for being godly, for doing the right thing. And when we grow up in the church, especially, it is very easy for us to think that our standing before God is because of the things that we do or we don't do. When I was in seminary, something that was said on multiple occasions is basically this sentiment. The hardest people to reach for the truth are the ones that go to church. The ones that sit in the pew and are not believers those are the hardest people to reach because they think they're pretty good. They think that God is happy with them because they don't do X, Y, Z, or they do A, B, C over here. It's easy to rely on ourselves when we're good kids, when we're nice people. But Paul has been saying here in this chapter, but we're not. We're not good people. And Paul is bringing his primary argument here to a climax. And you might say he is stomping on the last toe. He did so in chapter 1 by stomping on our idolatry. And in chapter 2 at the beginning on our moralism. And then beginning in verse 17 on our religious privileges. And now here in the last section on our religious activities. But not one act of righteousness is worth anything if we do it imperfectly. If we sin, verse 25, 
our circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so whether we're talking about prayer or worship, whether we're talking about tithing or helping others, whether we're talking about helping with Bible school or work day, being a good friend, teaching our children the ways of the Lord, all these things are good. But if we do them with any sinfulness whatsoever, they become worthless. They are worthless for our standing before God because they don't meet God's standard. All of us must come to terms with this. And it's especially hard for those of us who've been in the church our whole lives or for many, many years. We like to think that our behaviors somehow contribute something to make God happy with us. <clears throat> but there is nothing that we do that is perfect. Everything we do, even the best things we do, really add to the punishment and judgment that we deserve. And so as I emphasized last time, let me say again, <clears throat> don't merely understand this truth. Internalize it. Wrap your whole self around the reality that you are a wretched, wicked person. Even now as a believer. It's not just the corrupt politicians who are this. It's not just the lying salesmen. Or maybe you heard this week, one of the policemen that was used by the liberal left to imprison many people over January 6th. Well, the videos now show that he lied about everything. It's not just those people who are ultra-wicked. We're really no different when we compare ourselves to God's standard. Now, one of the commentators that I use put it this way. I thought it was very helpful. Our tendency is to look at God's standard, and his standard, of course, is we must be 100, 100%, perfection, no uh, breaking of his law in any way whatsoever. But our tendency is to think, well, you know, I did something pretty good. That's got to rate somewhere on that scale, right? You know, maybe it's in the 20s or 30s. And, and, you know, the very best things we do, you know, that's got to at least get up into, you know, the 60s, maybe the 70s on this scale. Well, we're not to 100. We recognize that. But, you know, it, it's got to be good in some way, right? The answer to this question is no. It doesn't even rate on the scale. When we do not obey perfectly, our circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Our righteous deeds are filthy rags. It's still a zero. We can't even get to point one on this scale. Because all of our good things, as Paul said in Philippians 3, are useless, rubbish, worthy of the garbage dump worthy to be burned up. Now that particular word in Philippians 3 for rubbish is only used there. It's not used elsewhere in the New Testament. And when that happens, we're always a little uncertain of what it may mean. But the point is clear. It's worthy of being thrown away. Flush down the toilet. As we see in Isaiah 64 verse 6, it's like menstrual cloths. And so again, I ask the question, have you come to terms with your imperfection, even as a true believer? Have you come to realize that even your best things 
God can't be happy with because God demands perfection. Well, let's look then at the next couple verses. Verse 26. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man <clears throat> keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? All right, well, first of all, we have therefore, and right, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, since our imperfect obedience means we are no better than an unbeliever before God, then our outward obedience means nothing. Only those who perfectly obey, sinlessly, righteously obey God's standard, only they are pleasing in God's sight. And so therefore, if a Gentile who's not been circumcised outwardly, or fill in the blank with something else, right, hasn't been baptized, is not a church member or whatever, if, if one of these people keeps God's law without sin, is he not truly circumcised? Is he not truly one of God's members in his church? And sometimes in Greek, when a question is asked, the assumed answer is given, and that's what we have here. And the assumed answer is yes. Okay. As Paul says uh, here at the end of the verse, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? The answer is yes, it will. It doesn't matter about the outward religion. What matters is, does he truly obey? And completely. So then in verse 27, it continues, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? All right, now first of all, uh, the New King James presents this verse as a question, just like in verse 26. And that is possible, but the Greek is not clear as to which way to go. And so if you have another translation, it's given as a statement, not as a question. And we saw the same thing back in verse 23, you may recall. But whether it's a direct statement or whether it's a question, it's still the same point, the same concluding point. The person who was never circumcised outwardly but obeys God will judge the Jew, the believer, the Christian, who sins even though they have the scriptures, even though they have the sign of the covenant. Now notice that Paul is repeating himself here. Uh, let's look back at verses 6 and following. You recall what we saw here in verse 6, that God will judge or render to each one according to his deeds. Now you may recall that uh, we looked at uh, a few passages together, and then I read a whole bunch more. I don't remember, was it 15 or 20 of them or something like that. Because this idea is found throughout all the scriptures. And Paul is taking us back to this idea. God will render to each one according to his deeds. So verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also of the Greek. He's saying the same thing here now, isn't he? In verses 26 and 27. Okay? So even if the Gentile, who's not circumcised, 
does these things, right, he's going to be rewarded with glory, honor, and peace. But if even the Jew doesn't obey God, he'll be rewarded with tribulation and anguish. Why? Verse 11, for there's no, uh, no partiality with God. And so whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, those who do rightly will be rewarded with these things. And anyone who sins, whether Jew or Gentile, circumcised or not, will face God's wrath and judgment. And no one has an advantage, Paul says. Not even those whom God chose. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, the Jews, us. We don't have an advantage on the day of judgment. Okay? Because our obedience is not the basis for our standing before God because we don't have obedience, not perfectly. Think of Abraham. He, of course, was from a family of moon worshipers. God called him out of that, but he lied to Pharaoh and Abimelech about Sarah, among other things. Isaac, remember, of course, refused to uh, bless Jacob and favored the one that God had not chosen. And, of course, Jacob, he deceived his father. He had four wives. He favored Joseph, among many other sins. And so, because we are like them, whether we are descendants of Abraham or not, whether we are circumcised or not, whether we keep any religious standard of the Old Testament or not, or whether we're a Christian or not, baptized or not, or any other religious activity, whether we do it or not, since we are sinful, no religious practice, religious heritage, outward words or deeds results in God's blessings. If we would do it perfectly, there would be all kinds of blessings, but of course we don't. And so God will render to us indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish, both now and forever. Okay. And so whether we're talking about the person who has never heard of Jesus before in his life, or the person who pretends to be a believer, but it's only to receive praise from men, or votes, as we saw this past week, uh, and... Even as we consider the, the Christian who sincerely tries to obey God, but does it imperfectly. Okay, verse 25, when we sin, all our righteous deeds become unrighteousness. Useless, rubbish, worthy of judgment, and if you will, the eternal manure pile. And it's because God is impartial. Now, you know, when we hear this, this is rather shocking, isn't it? And you might even say, this doesn't seem fair. I mean, think of all the things that you have done to serve God. Think of all the good things you have done in relationship to other people. It just doesn't seem fair. Or to put it this way, how can an innocent baby that was beheaded by a Hamas soldier be no different than the Hamas soldier on the Day of Judgment? How can my efforts at godliness be no better than the globalist who's trying to exterminate 80% of the world's population? Why does my efforts to help an aging parent or a shut-in 
or my tithing or my singing with gusto. Why does that still leave me under wrath? That just doesn't seem right. And, and, and how then can I be no different than the person who never goes to church, who abuses others, steals from others, loves evil things? If this is the case, then why should I bother? If it really makes no difference at all in my standing before God, I might as well sleep in. I might as well do something today rather than come and hear. If this is really the case, then I have no hope at all. And that's where Paul wants us to end up. Without any hope in ourselves. None of us are the white sheep of the family. We may not be ultra jet black. We may be varying shades of gray. But none of us are white. And that's the point. Have you grasped your plight? You have nothing in your life that results in glory, honor, and praise. And again, for those of us who've lived a pretty good life, this is hard to swallow. But we must. Okay? We must. We can't rely on, well, I never changed the rules playing on the playground with the kids. We can't rely on the fact that I attend church regularly or do my devotions every day or whatever it is. Paul's saying, look, if you've done it sinfully, then shut your mouth. You have nothing to say. You have no defense. God's standard doesn't change. God's character doesn't change. He hates sin and he will punish it. Not only will he punish the things that we regret saying and doing, he will punish the things that we feel good about. And so you are wicked, wretched, a worm. You are unholy and unrighteous and unworthy of any blessing. Believe it, accept it, quit arguing in your soul. Quit clinging to something that you think is your ticket into heaven, making you worthy of blessing, because there is nothing in ourselves, and God judges impartially. Let me read here a moment. This is from James Montgomery Boyce, and he's quoting from Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge was a theologian about 150 years ago, and Hodge here is uh, quoting from Jewish sources. And so this fits some with what I mentioned last week, but uh, bringing it in here uh, today. And so he says this, Rabbi Menachem, in his commentary in the book of Moses, says, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. In the Jalkot Rubani, it is taught, Circumcision saves from hell. In the Midrash Tilim, it is said, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. In the book of Akadah Jizahak, it is taught that Abraham sits before the gate of hell and does not allow any circumcised Israelite should enter there. This is what Paul is addressing, these kinds of ideas, right? 
And he says, uh, no, not at all. Circumcision isn't going to save you from hell if you've sinned. So let's replace these quotes with something else. First of all, hey, no baptized man will see hell. You heard that one? Catholic Church teaches that, among others. Or how about this one? Church membership. If you're on the roll, that'll save you from hell. And unfortunately, many people hold on to that one. Um, God swore to Abraham that no one who ties on their gross should be sent to hell. Or lastly, Abraham sits before the gate of hell and he does not allow that any fill in the blank, any good Christian should enter there. Now, Paul's been rather relentless here, hasn't he? Since chapter 1, verse 18, we now have 42 verses of Paul continuing to stomp on us. He has not deviated from his goal of removing all hope that we would have in ourselves, even a minuscule hope. And you know, Paul's not even done. We get to chapter 3, verse 9. He says, look, it's not just that you've done bad things. It's not just that your good things are imperfect, but you're actually under sin. And what he means by that is we are enslaved to our sinfulness. It's even worse than just not doing good things, not doing things perfectly. But we're actually slaves of sin. And then in chapter 5, he's going to say, we sin because we're sinners. We're sinners because we're united to Adam. So it's even worse than the fact that we're a slave of it. Our federal head is Adam. And so at the moment of our conception, we are considered a wretched, worthless person. That's how bad it is. And then in Ephesians 2, he says that we're dead in our sins. There's nothing we can do about it. And so you you think he's been relentless up till now. Well, there's more to come. And how terrible we are. Now, I have briefly, at times, jumped ahead to give us Wait, there's more to the story than this. And you remember in verses 17 to 20 that I paused to elaborate on the privileges that we have as God's people. But Paul's not done that until now. Let me read verses 28 and 29. Verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. We can receive praise from God. Just not based on anything we've done. We can receive praise from God. But not because we are born into a good family, or attend the right church, or whatever it is. Something has to go on inside of us 
And it has to be done by the Spirit. Not by us, but by God's Spirit. That is our glimmer of hope that Paul gives us. He, he lets a little bit of light shine here in this dark reality. You might say he pulls back the curtain just a bit to give us a glimpse into his larger argument. He won't start really pulling the curtains apart until chapter 3, verse 21, and then into chapter 4, and then he'll elaborate greatly on the work of the Spirit in chapter 8, especially. Um, but he gives us a little glimpse here. And so, let me follow his lead in this way. Let's give a little bit of glimpse into the rest of the story. But don't forget what we've been talking about. Let's turn to Psalm 51. Hey, I'm no different than you. I, 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 it's hard to hear these things. I'd much rather think, yeah, well, I'm a pastor. That's pretty good, right? It's so easy for us to rely on something in ourselves. Right? Now, <clears throat> we have sung hymn number 486, which is Psalm 51, <clears throat> a number of times since we started this section in chapter 1, verse 18. Okay? Beth, are we up to 10 or 12? I mean, it's been quite a few over these last uh, few months. Because I'm, I'm wanting us to remember the broader story uh, in the worship service. And of course, we did it today. So let me read it. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So obviously, right, David sinned with Bathsheba, had this affair, killed her husband, that whole scenario. Now notice the first thing out of his mouth. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, it's not just when we completely fall like David did with Bathsheba that this should be our response. Even those days we feel good about ourselves, this should be our response. Our only hope is if God has mercy and grace upon us. That's the only hope we have. The only way that we can have our sins blotted out is God's grace. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. <clears throat> For every one of these verses, I can say a whole lot more. But the basic point is simply this. David is acknowledging his sin here with Bathsheba and, and all that, right? He's acknowledging his sin. Uh, he's not saying, I did not sin against Bathsheba or Uriah. What he is saying is, ultimately, all of our sins are against God. Yes, when we hate our neighbor, that's true. That's a sin against them. But ultimately, it is a sin against God. And God is blameless in his judgment, of course, impartial, as we've seen. But David goes now one more step. Note verse 5. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's not just when we do something really bad, like have an affair or murder somebody. But we're born sinners. In sin my mother conceived me, he says. At the moment of our conception, we are wretched, awful, evil, worthless, rubbish David acknowledges this. So he's not just saying, oh, I messed up, but, you know, I've done pretty good over here. <laughs> no, he's like, there's nothing that I do that is good. I've been a sinner from the moment of my existence here on earth. So verse 6, behold, you desire truth. Note, in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you see how the words of Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, fit with this? Paul's saying the same thing. It's the work of the Spirit within that makes us a true Jew. <coughs> it's the work of the Spirit within us that will actually cleanse us. Because the Spirit is taking the perfect work of Christ and washing us clean. We call it Christ accomplished the work. The Spirit applies that work to us. And that's what David is emphasizing here. That's what Paul is emphasizing in the end of Romans 2. Okay. So again, it's nothing we do. It's what God does. So verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. And I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. Now David's already a believer. He has fallen. He is praying for restoration. Okay. Ultimately, of course, there's no restoration. Okay. We're sinners. Um, but it's the same principle. We can have the joy of salvation when his spirit generously works in us. And then we can do something that is good in God's sight. Verse 13. So verse 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now, I think we, we must assume that David went to the altar after he sinned with Bathsheba and offered sacrifices for his sin. He is not saying here in this that he didn't do that. Surely he must have. But what he's telling us here is the outward act of religion is not what saves. The outward act of religion does not cleanse our heart. Okay? Paul talks about circumcision. David here talks about sacrifice. We could talk about any other good thing that God has commanded us to do. That's not what's going to cleanse us. God's not happy with that. No, he's happy with a heartfelt repentance 
And that heartfelt repentance can only come if the Spirit cleanses our hearts. We can't do that. Because even our best efforts are going to leave our hearts still pretty black. So then verse 18. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Do you see how the outward forms of religion, verse 19, can only happen and only be pleasing to God if, verse 18, God does good. And so to put that here in our context, the only way our sitting here, worshiping God, singing to him, hearing his word proclaimed, praying, the only reason these things are good in God's sight is because Jesus was good for us and did it perfectly in our place. And took the punishment that we deserve. So we can, if you will, rank on this scale as believers. But only because God looks at me. He looks at you and says, well, Jesus met all of it. And that's how I can be happy with you. Well, let's shut the curtain. here's a glimpse of what Paul's going to say, what the rest of the scripture does say to us. But let's not forget the main point, that point we'd rather not talk about so much and wrap yourselves around the fact that you are so evil that God really is not pleased with us at all. Even as believers, he is only pleased because of Jesus in our place. Well, a few thoughts here today. And next time we will elaborate on verses 28 and 29 and what Paul is teaching us there and its implications uh, for us. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you uh, for your word. We are thankful, Lord, that you do not sugarcoat things. You don't sweep things under the rug. You don't ignore the elephant in the room. You don't just look at the outward and uh, um, be fooled. But we are thankful, Lord, that you see us as we are in all of our wretchedness. Help us, Lord, to see it that way, too. Help us not, Lord, to trust in anything in ourselves, but to trust in you alone, in your mercy, in Christ's work for us, and the work of the Spirit applying Christ's work to us. May that be our hope, the work of the Trinity, of which we sung at the beginning today of our service. May our hope be in you alone. Lord, we are so thankful that you don't wait for our hope to be perfect and our faith to be without doubt. For even in these things, we do it with lots of blackness and lots of sin. 
It's all because of your electing grace. And Lord, we are thankful. And so Lord, may um, just pray that you would work in this way and uh, be merciful to us in this way that we then may trust you more fully and love you more deeply. We pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.